0: Amen. So this uh, winter, and, or fall and winter, I guess we're almost in winter now, um, we are looking at another great book, The Institutes of John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin's life work, of course, that he uh, published uh, multiple editions of, revising each time. But every time he started it, even when the first edition he wrote as a young man began with these words. Uh, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts knowledge of God and of ourselves. Um, Calvin understood that the knowledge of God and knowledge of self was always intertwined and even dependent upon the other, um, that we needed both in order to have true wisdom. And that really is um, the the goal of the Institutes, is to expound upon these two subjects. And we'll see again today the way in which knowledge of self is connected to uh, knowledge of God. Um, the problem, of course, according to Calvin and the scriptures as well, is that when we think about what it means to know God, we have to be honest that the knowledge of God that he has given to us we have smothered and corrupted by our own ignorance or our own rebellion and our sin. Uh, we do not apprehend God as he offers himself, as Calvin puts it, but we imagine him as we have fashioned him in our own presumption. And This is idolatry. This is what it means to be idolatrous to fashion God according to our wishes instead of how he um, actually has revealed himself to be. Uh, But in the midst of this uh, blindness that we have in our sin, the Lord does speak to us, and the primary way that he speaks to us is through uh, the scriptures. Um, God does, as Calvin puts it, bestow actual knowledge of himself upon us only in the scriptures. Uh, Creation itself, because of our sin, is not sufficient to give us knowledge of God in any a salvific or a comprehensive way. Only the scriptures can do that and the Lord speaks to us through them. Um, Calvin tells us that the, the scriptures are like spectacles for us. That they actually, when we put them on, when we study them, when the spirit illumines our hearts and we read them, um, it, they actually give us a clear vision of who God is. We can see the natural world, see his creation, see his attributes uh, through new lenses, so to speak. Um, and we can see him clearly. Um, this is where uh, God gathers up the otherwise confused knowledge of himself in our minds and clearly shows us himself as the true God um, through uh, the scriptures. Uh, we then, several weeks ago, looked at what Calvin taught about creation. Um, Calvin wanted to really emphasize that uh, God's creative work was really central to our understanding of who he was, um, that there is no other God, we must seek no other God but him who was put forth as the maker of and founder of the universe. Um, All knowledge of God begins with this, that he is the benevolent creator. He is uh, the maker of all things. Um, He is uh, maker of heaven and earth. Um, And Calvin has this wonderful quote, because um, when we see creation rightly, when we see it through the lens of scripture, when we understand how it reveals the true God, creation then becomes a most beautiful theater of God's glory, and God's uh, person, who God is. Uh, Calvin tells us not to be ashamed to take pious delight in the works of God, open and manifest in this most beautiful theater. Um, So this is certainly inclusive of things like beautiful mountain vistas, uh, but it also um, means things like just enjoying creation, enjoying created things properly. Um, Within those, we see that God himself is revealed Um, We can take pious delight in the things of this world when we understand them rightly. Um, And it is creation, actually, that encourages us to to believe that God is actually good to us. Um, God even, uh, Calvin talks a lot about about the the reality that that man was made last. And so all created things were made before him. It's like a, a father who builds a house and 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 fills it with furniture, and and, uh, everything is just right. And then he moves the family in. Then he um, opens a door for his children to their new bedroom. This is what God has done for us in creation, Calvin says. And it should encourage us that that because God has given us all these things, he has created all things for us. Then, uh, invited by the great sweetness of his beneficence and goodness, let us study to love and serve him with all our heart. Um, We should petition him boldly for whatever we desire, because he's already given us all things. We should trust in him for salvation, because we know that he is good to us. Uh, Then last week, we began to look at Calvin's teachings regarding providence. Um, For Calvin, uh, knowing God as a a momentary creator, as he puts it, one who creates and then walks away from his creation, uh, sets the wheels in motion, and then uh, takes a nap, or goes and does something else. That is a, a very deficient understanding of who God is. Um, Calvin says, unless we pass on to God's providence, we do not properly grasp what it means to say that God is creator. Um, So God's providence means um, that that he is the everlasting governor and preserver, right? Uh, This is what our faith ought to penetrate into. Not only God is making the world and then stepping back, but God is the constant governor and preserver of all created things. Um, our bodies, um, the, the stars that hang in the sky, um, the insect life, um, the microbiotics, all these sorts of things. Everything that happens, even down to the atomic, atomic level, is uh, sustained and governed by God. Um, Calvin says that not only he drives the celestial frame, um, as well as its several parts by universal motion, but also in that he sustains, nourishes, and cares for everything he has made, even to the least sparrow. Uh, The universe is personal, right? The universe is personal because it is sustained by a personal God at every moment. That is a a fundamental idea of God's providence. And Calvin argues, we saw last week, that that because of God's providence, that means when there are things in our lives, that that life that we have complaints about or issues with, our business is not with our quote-unquote enemy. It's not with Um, the person who is against us, we think. Our business is actually with the maker and framer of the universe. We believe that God has ordained all that comes to pass, and so we must do business with him. Of course, the book of Job is the great um, uh, example of this. Um, But the the doctrine of God's providence also sets us free um, from extreme anxiety and fear. We don't have to be afraid of things that might happen to us because we know that whatever comes into our lives is given to us by the hand of our Father. Uh, We might justly dread fortune or fate or chance, but if we believe rightly in God's providence, we will fearlessly commit ourselves to God uh, because we know that he is not only good, he is also powerful, he is sovereign, and he watches over every detail of our lives. So Calvin concluded that section with this wonderful quote. He says that ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all mysteries, because basically, if you, if you don't acknowledge God's providence, you're left with a, a, a random universe, a universe that is governed by fate and chance. Uh, but the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Knowledge of God's personal sustaining of all things um, gives us uh, blessedness and comfort uh, because of his love for us. All right, any questions about any of this stuff that we've, I've just reviewed and we've covered over the last several weeks before we jump into... Calvin's teaching on sin. Okay. As we jump into this, I just want to make this point. Um, I've mentioned before, I think, that it's interesting, Calvin's uh, doctrine of election actually doesn't come until very late in the Institutes. Uh, we're in Book 2, and I think election doesn't come until somewhere toward the end of, ch- of Book 3. Um, And there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that is because Calvin is going to work up to election in a very logical sort of way. And for Calvin, a right knowledge of self, of the fallen self, um, sets the right foundation for knowledge of God's electing work. Uh, We have to begin, as we think about election, uh, with a right knowledge of our own sin and our own depravity. Um, If we rightly believe, as Calvin argues, in our sin and depravity, our inability to do anything that is pleasing to God in and of ourselves, our inability to choose God um, on our own, then we will be left, logically, with no other conclusion but that the Lord does it. The Lord is responsible for all of it. The Lord is the one who elects and chooses, uh, not human beings. So really, right knowledge of self in terms of our sin and our, uh, our, our, our corruption because of that sin is connected intimately to our knowledge of God's electing work. All right, so book two, chapter one. By the fall and revolt of Adam, the whole human race was delivered to the curse and degenerated from its original condition, that is, the doctrine of original sin. So Calvin is going to go back to where he began book one, right, with knowledge of self. Knowledge of self is so fundamental for Calvin. He says, with good reason, the ancient proverb strongly recommended knowledge of self to man. But knowledge of ourselves lies first in considering what we were given at creation and how generously God continues his favor toward us in order to know how great our natural excellence would be if only it had remained unblemished. Yet at the same time to bear in mind that there is is in us nothing of our own, but that we hold on sufferance whatever God has bestowed upon us. Hence we are ever dependent upon him. So for Calvin, knowledge of self rightly begins with our knowledge of ourselves as created beings who were set in in paradise, in the garden, uh, with all good things, um, made with dignity, made in God's image, uh, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. All those things were given to us at the beginning. Uh, But there's a second part to proper knowledge of self, and that is not only to know the original created condition of humanity, but also to call to mind, as Calvin puts it, our miserable condition after Adam's fall, the awareness of which, when all our boasting and self-assurance are laid low, should truly humble us and overwhelm us. In the beginning, God fashioned us after his image that he might arouse our minds both to zeal to virtue and meditation upon eternal life. But that primal worthiness cannot come to mind without the sorry spectacle of our foulness and dishonor, presenting itself by way of contrast since in the person of the first man we have fallen from our original condition. From this source arise abhorrence and displeasure with ourselves, as well as true humility. And thence is kindled a new zeal to seek God, in whom each of us may recover those good things, which we have utterly and completely lost. So Calvin basically is saying, if you're going to know yourself, you have to be honest. You have to be honest not only about what God um, set you up with in creation, um, the image that he gave you, all the good things, you also have to be honest about how much the sin and fall of Adam, which you are a participant in, has, uh, has devastated that condition, uh, that you are now in a miserable condition, that, that your, uh, your status before God is one um, that should humble you, because you've been laid low. Both of these things are necessary to have true knowledge of self. And then he taught me talk about some of the obstacles to this kind of true knowledge. Um, I love um, how he puts this. He talks about pride. Men by nature is inclined to deluded self-admiration. Not just self-admiration, but deluded self-admiration. Um, Here then is what God's truth requires us to seek in examining ourselves. It requires the kind of knowledge that will strip us of all confidence in our own ability, deprive us of all occasion for boasting and lead us to submission. He says, I'm quite aware how much more pleasing is that principle which invites us to weigh our good traits, rather than to look upon our miserable want and dishonor, which ought to overwhelm us with shame. There is indeed nothing that man's nature seeks more eagerly than to be flattered. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no idea what Calvin's talking about here. This, right, <laughs> this seems crazy to me. Uh, no, I think, I think he's exactly right. You know, if you're going to write a bestseller, um, what is the right way to do that? It's to, to praise humanity, right? To tell people how good they are. And how uh, many things they're capable of, right? If only they have some some new knowledge. Uh, but Calvin uh, takes the opposite task. He says uh, we need to be honest with ourselves, even about our tendency towards self-delusion. Accordingly, when man's nature—I'm sorry, yeah—when when man's nature becomes aware that its gifts are highly esteemed, it tends to be unduly credulous about them, right? When someone praises you, uh, what are you inclined to do? Believe them, right? What if someone is critical of you? I don't know what they're talking about, right? They, they don't really understand the context of whatever it was that I did that in, right? We're, we're inclined to believe the best about ourselves. It is no wonder that the majority of men have erred so perniciously in this respect, for since blind self-love is innate in all mortals, they are most freely persuaded that nothing inheres in themselves that deserves to be considered hateful. Thus, even with no outside support, the utterly... Uh, vain opinion generally obtains credence that man is abundantly sufficient of himself to lead a good and blessed life. So, for Calvin, this um, tendency to inflate our importance and significance is not uh, just sort of a, a, a interesting, um, you know, quirk about us. It actually is really devastating to us in terms of the way that we think about salvation, because this bleeds over into our own understanding of our work in the salvific act. Right? If we are have a tendency to believe that we are better off than um, we actually are, um, then that is going to impact how uh, potentially we think about our role in salvation. We are going to be tempted to give ourselves more uh, due than we ought. We're going to be tempted to think that we're more responsible uh, than we are. Um, Calvin says, uh, However such great commendation of human excellence that teaches man to be satisfied with himself, if you are being taught to be satisfied with yourself, it does nothing but delight in its own sweetness. Indeed, it so deceives as to drive those who assent to it into utter ruin. So this is the end of believing uh, the best about ourselves in some unlimited way. Uh, utter ruin is where that will lead. Whoever then heeds such teachers as hold us back with thought of only our good traits Will not advance in self-knowledge, but will be plunged into the worst ignorance. Why is deluded self-knowledge the worst ignorance? There's no way to break it, right? So we already—it's <laughs> it's complete blindness, right? Uh, because we we are not going to hear anything that's going to that kind of contradict it, right? Because we have this—we're convinced of our own our own goodness, our own abilities. Um, uh, Calvin then begins to talk about um, original sin and how that um, impacts the way that we know ourselves. Um, The first sin as original sin. This is where Calvin is leading all this discussion. As it was the spiritual life of Adam to remain united and bound to his maker, so estrangement from him was the death of his soul. Estrangement from God, that is. Therefore, after the heavenly image was obliterated in him, he was not only the only one to suffer this punishment, that in place of wisdom, virtue, holiness, truth, and justice, with which adornments he had been clad, there came forth the most filthy plagues, blindness, empathy, impurity, vanity, and injustice. But he also entangled and immersed his offspring in the same miseries. Um, So Calvin here is connecting the reality of what we believe regarding Adam's sin um, to ourselves, that Adam's sin is not something that simply happened in a vacuum apart from us, but it actually is intimately connected to who we are. We have been entangled and immersed in the same miseries that Adam fell into. This is the inherited corruption, which the church fathers termed original sin, meaning by the word sin, the deprivation of a nature previously good and pure. Therefore, all of us who have descended from impure seed are born infected with the contagion of sin. In fact, before we saw the light of this life, we were spoiled, I'm sorry, we were soiled and spotted in God's sight. Um, so Calvin here is, is unpacking this doctrine of original sin, which says that, that in Adam's fall, all fell, or as, as um, Paul puts it in Romans 5, um, when Adam sinned, all sinned, right? All sinned in Adam. Adam was our representative head, and so when Adam sinned, all of us participated in that sin because in a sense, our union with Him uh, with our first, uh, first head. Uh, original sin therefore, seems to be a hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature, diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath. So original sin uh, makes us subject to God's judgment, um, to God's anger, um, but also it brings forth in those, it also brings forth in us those works, which Scripture calls the works of flesh. Um, So basically, um, Calvin is saying, not only did we sin in Adam's sin, but we also, and we receive right judgment for that, we also, because of our sin nature, because of this original sin, um, are ourselves sinners. Our sin comes out of that seed, that place. Not only has punishment fallen upon us from Adam, but a contagion imparted by him resides in us which justly deserves punishment. For that reason, even infants themselves, and here's the, you know, Calvin is going to press this to its its farthest extent, um, whatever objection we might have, right? Even, what about babies? Babies are so innocent and uh, sweet. For that reason, even infants themselves, why they carry their condemnation along with them from the mother's womb, are guilty, not of another's fault, but of their own. For even though the fruits of their iniquity have not yet come forth, they have the seed enclosed within them, the seed of sin. Indeed, their whole nature is a seed of sin, hence it can only be hateful and abhorrent to God. From this it follows that it is rightly considered sin in God's sight, for without guilt there would be no accusation. Then comes the second consideration, that this perversity, this seed of sin, never ceases in us, but continually bears new fruits the works of flesh that we've already described, just as a burning furnace goes forth flame and sparks, or water ceaselessly bubbles up from a spring. Thus those who have defined original sin as the lack of the original righteousness which ought um, to reside in us, although they comprehend in this definition the whole meaning of the term, have still not expressed effectively its its power and, and energy. For our nature is not only destitute and empty of good, but so fertile and fruitful of every evil that it cannot be idle. Um, so, so Calvin here basically is saying um, that 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 the sin that resides within us um, it is not innate. It is not um, um, just a, a status that we have. It is something that we actively participate in, and we cannot help but do so. It is a quote-unquote a natural uh, thing at this point um, in the world. All right, I, I've I've run through a lot in the last ten minutes or so. Any questions? Any thoughts about what we've talked about so far in terms of original sin? Yes, sir. Eric. Yes, yeah, he will talk about that, yep. God actually restrains this in us, Yeah. Yeah, good question. I don't know if he's going to unpack that, but he is going to talk about the, yeah, the way that, that God actually restrains this impulse in us. Um, let's see. Yeah, actually he actually talks about it right here. Let me, let's look at this. Um, so Book 2, Chapter 3, um, with the, the lovely title, Only Damnable Things Come Forth from Man's Corrupt Nature. Right. There's a tattoo for you right there. Um, um, what's that? Your bumper sticker, right. <laughs> um, but in, in, in section 8 in this chapter, um, we see that God's grace sometimes restrains where it does not cleanse. Um, he talks about the reality that, that, that there are some people who, who actually act pretty good. So what do we do about that, um, relatively speaking, right? They don't, they're not always uh, murdering and uh, thieving and all those kinds of things. Uh, here it ought to occur to us that amid this corruption of nature, there is some place for God's grace, not such grace as to cleanse our nature, but to restrain it inwardly. For if the Lord gave loose rein to the mind of each man to run riot in his lusts, there would be doubtless no one who would not uh, show that, in fact, every evil thing for which Paul condemns us, all nature is most truly to be met in himself. Um, he says, "If every soul is subject to such abominations as Paul talks about, we shall surely see what would happen if the Lord were to permit human lust to wander according to its own inclination. Uh, no mad beast would rage as unrestrainedly, no river, however swift and violent, burst so madly into flood. In His elect, the Lord cures these diseases in a way that we shall soon explain. So the Lord cures the disease of corruption and His elect. But, even for those who are not elect. Others he merely restrains by throwing a bridle over them, only that they may not break loose, inasmuch as he foresees their control to be expedient to preserve all that is." Um, So basically what Calvin is saying here is that uh, total depravity does not mean that human beings are as bad as they could be on their own. And that's a really important thing to talk about. Total depravity refers to the totality, the comprehensiveness, of our depravity, that there's nothing good in us in and of ourselves. Um, it, it covers, it impacts all aspects of who we are. It does not mean that our sin is as great as it could be. Actually, as, as Reformed believers, we believe in what's called common grace, that the Lord actually restrains the wickedness of humanity and holds it back from, from where it might go if it were un, unhindered or untethered. Um, he says, hence, some are restrained by shame, right? The Lord can use shame from, from people, keeping people from doing things that are, uh, that are wicked, from breaking out into many kinds of foulness. Others by the fear of the law, right? Maybe they fear punishment in the body uh, from a governmental authority, even though they do not, for the most part, hide their impurity. Still others because they consider an honest manner of life profitable in some measure aspire to it. Maybe the Lord has just given them the desire to live honorably. Um, Others rise above the common lot in order, um, by their excellence, to keep the rest obedient to them, right? Some people are even motivated by self-interest in their pursuit of, you know, quote-unquote righteousness or morality. But all these things and all these different motives or reasons, God, by his providence, bridles perversity of nature, that it may not break forth into action, but he does not purge it within. So we would not say that the Lord, by his common grace, uh, regenerates people, Or gives them a new heart, but we would say that He limits the impact of their sin. And I think we see this in our society today. I don't. I know we can rightly complain sometimes about how bad things are, but you know, if the Lord's Spirit were not at work um, around the world, and in some extent in every person, um, I think we would, you know, the 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 hell that is people in their own sin nature without God's. Uh, common grace restraining their sin is not one that we want to inhabit, um, certainly in this life. And, and we should say it's not one that we do. The Lord is gracious to us. He, he keeps us back. Um, Calvin goes on to talk about how man sins, um, not uh, because he's being compelled by God to sin, um, but because it is necessary for him to sin according to his nature. So here Calvin's going to get into some of the things we talked about last week in terms of how God's providence interacts with um, his, uh, his own decision making <clears throat> um, okay so here, here's the application for Calvin really uh, that man's inability to do good manifests itself above all in the work of redemption which God does quite alone um, so for Calvin this is kind of a logical conclusion that if, if we are completely incapable of saving ourselves and yet some are saved then who must do the saving someone besides us right? That someone, according to Calvin, of course, is God. Um, God begins his good work in us, therefore, by arousing love and desire and zeal for righteousness in our hearts, or to speak more correctly by bending, forming, and directing our hearts to righteousness. He completes this work, moreover, by confirming us to perseverance in order that no one should make an excuse that good is initiated by the Lord to help the will which is by itself weak. So, Uh, Some people might say, well, the Lord just helps. We have weak wills. We just need a little nudge, right? We need a little push in the right direction. And the Spirit does do that, but we do the rest. Um, Calvin says that's crazy because the Spirit elsewhere declares what the will left to itself is capable of doing. And he quotes from Ezekiel where the Lord says, a new heart shall I give you and will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I shall put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in your statutes. The Lord compares the heart of fallen humanity to a heart of stone. Uh, To what extent can a heart of stone choose to beat and course blood through its veins? It can't at all. There's nothing, nothing in it that can do that. It doesn't just need a little nudge. You actually need a new heart. Um, to use that metaphor. You need a heart of flesh, which only someone other than yourself um, can place there. Um, Who shall say that the infirmity of the human will is strengthened by his help in order that he may aspire effectively to the choice of good, when it must rather be wholly transformed and renewed? We don't just need help. We need whole transformation, whole renewal. And the only one that can do that is the powerful and almighty God. Um, If, therefore, a stone is transformed into flesh when God converts to zeal for the right, whatever is of our own will is effaced. What takes its place is wholly from God. If even the least ability came from ourselves, we would also have some share of the merit. If even a tiny bit, right, even 1%, .1 0.1% came from our own merit, our own decisions in and of ourselves, um, our own uh, righteousness, then we could boast but Paul, to strip us, he goes back to the Scriptures, argues that we deserve nothing because we have been created in Christ. Right? There's no cause to boast, Paul says, because we have been created in Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand for us. He means by these words, Calvin says, that all parts of good works from their first impulse belong to God. Right? We did not imagine in ourselves the works that we would do. The Lord prepared them for us. We see how, Calvin says, not simply content to have given God due praise for our salvation, he expressly excludes us from all participation in it. It is as if he were saying that not a whit remains to man to glory in, for the whole salvation comes from God. The whole of salvation comes from God. In some ways, that's a, a, you know, uh, what is that, seven-word summary of uh, Calvin's doctrine, of what we might call Reformed theology the whole of salvation comes from God. Um, that's that's as good a summary as anything else, I think. Um, Calvin goes on to talk about um, how the prayers in the scriptures demonstrate this. Um, so also do we read the prayers composed by holy men. It's interesting, actually. Many times when we look to think about God's uh, these kinds of topics, God's sovereignty and our salvation, we, we go especially to the Pauline epistles. And of course, Paul does talk at length about these things, but... Calvin also goes back to the Old Testament, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, May the Lord incline our heart to him, said Solomon, that we may keep his commandments. He quotes from 1 Kings 8. Um, Here, um, Calvin says, Solomon shows the stubbornness of our hearts. By nature, they glory in rebelling against God's law unless they be bent. Our hearts must be inclined toward God. That's what Solomon teaches us. The same view is also held in the Psalms. Right? David says, incline my heart to your testimonies. We ought always to note the antithesis between the perverse motion of the heart by which it is drawn away to obstinate disobedience. Right? Our heart is always, um, uh, we are always wandering, Right, as the, the hymn puts us, uh, prone to wander. That, that is our disposition. Um, and this correction by which it is compelled to obedience. We need someone to overwhelm our nature, overwhelm our tendency, overwhelm uh, the magnetic attraction we have toward sin. Strange and monstrous indeed is the license of our pride, Calvin says. The Lord demands nothing stricter than for us to observe his Sabbath most scrupulously by resting from our labors. Yet there is nothing we are more unwilling to do than to bid farewell to our own labors and to give God's work their rightful place. So Calvin here says, even our opposition to this, our, our natural inclination towards sin, means also that we're naturally inclined to wanna to take credit for our salvation. Um, that, that our sin nature actually impacts the way that we think about salvation. We're gonna be inclined not to want to rest from our labors in salvation, uh, but to, to find something to do, find some work for us to do in our salvation. Uh, the first part of a good work is will, the other a strong effort to accomplish it. The author of both is God. Therefore, we are robbing the Lord if we claim for ourselves anything, either in will or in accomplishment. Um, if, oh, oh, sorry. if God were said to help our weak will, then something would be left to us. But when it is said that he makes the will, whatever of good is in it is now placed outside us. Right? God gives us a new will, um, according to Uh, to the scriptures. But since even a good will is weighed down by the burden of our flesh so that it cannot rise up, he added that to surmount the difficulties of that struggle, we are provided with constancy of effort sufficient to achieve this. Therefore, the Lord in this way both begins and completes the good work in us. It is the Lord's doing that the will conceives the love of what is right, is zealously inclined toward it, is aroused and moved to pursue it. Then it is the Lord's doing that the choice, zeal, and effort do not falter, but proceeds even to accomplishment. Lastly, that man goes forward in these things with constancy and perseveres to the very end. So beginning to end, Calvin would say, um, from our initial conversion um, to our our discipleship, our, our following after Jesus, all the way to our perseverance in the end, all of it is the work of God. None of it is because of our own desire or action. In and of ourselves, and that's connected intimately to that understanding of a comprehensive uh, view of our corrupted nature in Adam, uh, the uh, fact of original sin. Those those two things are intimately connected with one another. All right. Any as we wrap up this morning, any questions or points of discussion you all would like to explore? Yes, Maya. Yes, Yeah. so Calvin would say certainly that um, any human being, uh, no matter their age, um, even from birth, is as tainted, and not only tainted, but wholly corrupted by Adam's sin. Um, so, you know, he does acknowledge that there are aspects, how does he put it, of their, um, uh, their sin that have not yet been brought forth, right? It's that their sin is still in in seed form, so to speak. It's not fully developed. Um, but in terms of what the child's, the baby, standing before God, um, he is uh, under God's judgment and wrath because of his sin in Adam. And the seed of sin means that there's only one direction he's going to go as he gets older um, in and of himself, and that is towards uh, uh, sin and destruction. Yeah, so Calvin would certainly want to say that, that... That it, children are not born sort of neutral as a blank slate, but they're born in Adam um, in, and corrupted in Adam's sin. Yeah. I think it's important tell how children died. Uh-huh. A lot of people He really yeah. felt that that was an indication that they were allowed. Right. Yes. Yeah, many, many. Yeah, it's interesting because many of the reform, same reform connect, confessions that speak so strongly about corruption and sin um, as a universal experience for humanity, um, and and being subject to God's wrath, um, also speak very strongly about the hope that we have for children who die in infancy, particularly, of course, the children of believers, but even some of the confessions that are written um, during the time of the Reformation speak about all children that die in infancy. And, and you know, we can't, of course, ever um, speak with absolute certainty about anyone's salvation. Um, we can have, I think, a very strong hope um, for, um, yeah, for for infants who die, uh, or babies who die even before birth. Um, and, that, and the reason for that, though, is, of course, not because we believe that these babies are somehow innocent and and not sinners, um, but that God is merciful, and that God, um, in His, in His will, may very well be um, sparing them from um, the impact of sin and life in a fallen world and delivering them unto Himself um, immediately, and that He will indeed raise them from the dead on the last day. And that's yeah, it's a very strong promise. Yeah, that we we should emphasize absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a good hope for us. Yes, ma'am. ...abortion then. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is, um, I always thought that was a terrible blanket of excuse for the industry in our... No, yeah, yeah, certainly if someone is using that as a motivation to not... Um, uh, object to the murder of children then we would not want to do that I mean I I personally do think it's likely that the Lord does you know save children who are aborted um, and deliver them unto himself and it may very well be that the Lord that is the way that the Lord brings good out of evil in the same way that he did with Joseph and with the crucifixion you know all kinds of examples but yeah even as we looked at last week with Calvin about providence God's providence doesn't uh, remove us from taking appropriate actions, from following the law, from uh, you know, living with due prudence. And certainly we want to say protecting life is something we're called to do. Um, and you know, we can trust God with the eternal salvation of the aborted children, but we also are called clearly to protect them from from death. Yeah. Yeah it is. Yeah, Jeremy. The last last one we'll wrap up. Yeah, we would say that God restrains the sin of humanity for the sake of the church, but also more generally because, for the sake of all men. I mean, I think we can certainly say that. And that's why it's called common grace. It's 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 common. It's universal. It's it's not salvific, but it does restrain evil and it does preserve the world. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for us to to believe in that that even the worst human being is not as bad as they would be uh, without God's restraining grace in their lives. And, you know, even the Assyrians, you know, they were pretty terrible, uh, that empire. But even their wickedness was mitigated to some extent by the Lord's uh, graciousness. We can talk more, I think, about the end there because of time. Let's let's stand and pray. Father, we are grateful for um, the way in which knowledge of ourselves um, and of our sin and of our inability to do what is right the reality that in and of ourselves we are under your judgment, um, the, re- the way in which, by your Spirit, that leads not to despair but to hope, um, because we know that you have provided for us a Redeemer, um, one who delivers us from our sin, um, who gives us, uh, by your Spirit, a new heart, a heart made of flesh and not of stone. Um, help us, Lord, to be humble. Help us to be grateful um, for the work of salvation uh, that we have experienced, which is wholly wrought uh, by you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.